welcome to the Practical NLP podcast with me, Andy Smith. And uh, our guest today is international NLP trainer, Jonathan Altfeld, who I've known for a very long time. I believe I met Jonathan around about uh, 1997, something like that. Uh, he did a couple of gigs for the Richmond NLP group, which uh, I used to run. Uh, I attended a couple of his specialist seminars, and he taught on one of my master, my very first master practitioner course, actually, in back in 2004, when I didn't feel confident in teaching the modeling bit myself. We've been friends ever since. Jonathan's been uh, kind of a mentor to me in some ways on certain technical aspects of NLP. Uh, he's one of the smartest guys in NLP, and uh, he's one of the people making genuine innovations and contributions in the field. So uh, here he is, Jonathan Altfeld. Welcome. <laughs> Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for hosting me. And also, I'm blushing a little bit from that introduction. Wow. Uh, well, that's, that's fine. It's audio only, so we'll get away with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Can I first well, start yes. saying how impressed I am with your podcast? I think it's absolutely fabulous what you're doing. Oh, uh, thank you. So many wonderful subjects and interviewing some great folks. And uh, your podcast interview of James Sakalas was fabulous. And I just think you're, you're really contributing something profoundly valuable to the field. Uh, well, that's, that's good to know. That's, um, that's pretty much the occasional feedback I get from uh, the listeners as well, that people use it sometimes to add somebody saying they use it to train members of their call center sales team and so on. So uh, it's, it's good to know it is making a difference for people. Can I ask, Jonathan, uh, where are you in the world at the moment? I'm currently in Florida. Uh, that, this is actually where I used to live when you and I first met many, many eons ago. And, uh, and I took six and a half years to live in exile up in Pennsylvania back here at the end of 2014. So I'm, I'm just northeast of Tampa. So uh, for, for our listeners and um, for me as well, actually, uh, one of the first questions I ask generally uh, of, of my guests is, how did you get into NLP in the first place? Because I think you got in around about the same time I did, maybe a year or two earlier. So I would love to know uh, how you discovered NLP, how you got into it. Uh, certainly. Uh, let's see. Um, to, to really answer the question, I have to go back a little further, uh, I guess, to explain why and how NLP was valuable to me at the time which I got exposed to it. Um, my formal education was in architecture, believe it or not, which is always a blend of art and science. I spent two years at Cornell Architecture School. And then I transferred out of that uh, for philosophical reasons. I didn't happen to agree with uh, that particular architecture school's philosophy. And I moved uh, back to my original intention, which was to get a, a liberal arts degree. And I transferred to another school. And at that other school, I studied computer science and English and philosophy. So all of those have components that now reflect and fluoresce in my NLP career. And here's how and why I think that's true. My background was in computer science and AI, which is largely about listening for the logic behind natural language. So inevitably... Okay, sorry, can I, can I just stop you there for a moment? Just for the benefit of my listeners, anyone who um, has come into the podcast because they know me through teaching appreciative inquiry, uh, that's not the AI we're talking about, is it? You're talking about artificial intelligence? 
that's quite correct, and I appreciate the distinction. Thanks for that. So yes, um, so artificial intelligence and computer science. Uh, I was mostly involved in decision systems, intelligent decision systems, not learning systems. That was not my expertise. So all of that, that side of AI, or the AI that I was trained in, is about listening for the logic behind natural language. And what that means to me is uh, listening for the deep structure behind the surface structure of language. And that should sound very familiar to Nelbert. Mm -hmm. As for my love of English and literature, English is about the linguistic representation of art in, in, in one respect anyway, the art of language. And so combine computer science with English and now we've got the structure of artistic expression. And then I also had a background in philosophy which is about ethics and values and how we understand our world and each other and how we make sense from complexity. So I, I think I was primed without knowing how or why through my uh, collegiate education for NLP when I finally got exposed to it. So then I fast forward about seven years after a career in artificial intelligence. I was uh, taking a break from, from that career. I had uh, been published in an awards conference. I had uh, an illustrious career as a consultant in artificial intelligence, building decision systems that were in place, largely in the financial sector. And I was looking for something during this, this break I was taking to help me become a better knowledge engineer. I was originally expecting to stay in the artificial intelligence field. And when I got exposed to NLP, that, that took me in a completely different direction. It was like another calling had arrived and I started sponging it up and, and, uh, and that became um, inevitable, I think, for me. So that's how I got into NLP. Okay, um, and what sort, of, uh, what sort of time, what sort of year was that? That was 1996 and 1997. I think I think you're pretty close to your your um, your comment that we met in 97. I think we may have met either in very late 97 or possibly in early 98. So I spent about a, a year just sponging and absorbing NLP, and I think there were a lot of pieces there that were already true for me, already understood at a deep level. I mean, this idea of listening for deep structure underneath surface structure, and this idea of building maps of, of how people think. That was already something I was trained in, although through it, another discipline. So there were a lot of pieces of NLP that I didn't need to learn from scratch the way a lot of folks do. And so 1996, 1997 was a whirlwind uh, period for me. Wow, okay. Yeah, so, so uh, from uh, my AI perspective, appreciative inquiry perspective, one of the questions that I normally ask people is, What's been one of your best experiences of NLP? Oh, I've got so many weird things to choose from. Um, uh, do I pick from the time when I um, embarrassedly discovered that training lie detection skills also trains lying skills? <laughs> from the time, and oh boy, that was, I, I was red in the cheeks when I realized what had happened. Um, do I pick from the time, because those are learning experiences. Experiences, right? Those are, those yeah. are fabulous. So I picked the time when uh, I used to do those linguistic wizardry courses. You've been to a few, I think. Uh, yeah, I've been to at least one, yeah. And there have been some absolutely magical moments in, in those when we do what I call the village council exercises. Um, that was an extraordinary experience. But probably, the, as I'm thinking back, the, the most powerful, positive, best experience that I can think of was that my practitioner training, the first one I attended, in 1997 was with the amazing Rex Sykes. Uh -huh. Rex was 
a profound influence on on how I think about training and how I became uh, better at NLP. I'd, I'd spent months and months and months learning NLP on my own, uh, actively and aggressively, almost compulsively, uh, creating experiences, learning experiences every night, every day for myself. And three days in Rex's course uh, out of 14, we were doing 14-day practitioner training then, um, three days in his course exceeded six months of learning on my own, and that was profound. So... In 1997, I attended training with an extraordinary trainer who, who brought everyone in this room to extraordinary levels of greater skill and depth and knowledge. And I thought that's worth modeling. That's worth um, uh, sharing with other people and, and expressing how profound it was. And then in 2011, late 2011, Rex had taken about a decade off from NLP, and I had the unbelievable privilege of working with Rex and co-training in NLP practice. Um, and so that was really one of the best experiences I could ever hope for was, is uh, being able to share a stage, so to speak, with a mentor and work with him alongside him and learn how he thinks because I was getting these wonderful conversations, these sidebars as everyone else was progressing. All the students were doing their thing and we were working with them and then we'd sidle off to the side and, and have these discussions that were um, educational on a level at which I, I think I've been hungry for for years. That was, that's, that was truly a privilege. Oh, that sounds great. Um, and particularly since when you start out, you probably think, oh, I could never get to that level. And then you find yourself working with the guy uh, more or less as an equal and, uh, and they don't let you down because um, I've, I've uh, on occasion uh, found myself working with people who I used to look up to and um, when you work with them, you find, oh, okay, maybe they're not so hot after all. Uh, right. But uh, that doesn't sound like this was the case here. Yeah, pardon me for, step, for speaking over you. There's a lag in our, our conversation. There, there is, yeah. We, we, uh, we'll, we'll get used to it probably <laughs> round about the end of the interview. We'll have got used to that. <laughs> uh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, your perspective is right on. I have had both of those experiences, fortunately. And... Um, we don't notice our own progress day to day as, yeah. as, a, as a trainer. Um, so a decade goes by of, of wonderful work, hopefully wonderful work and, and great results and testimonials and all of that. And, and we don't notice our day to day movement, but then to be, uh, to be seen as an equal, to be, uh, to, to do kind of work as an equal, um, the evidence comes in later on and that's wonderful. I will say this. Um, yes, there were moments where, uh, where I was doing the kind of work I would expect to see and hear from, from Rex. But there were also moments of me um, having my humility kept in check, too. Because, um, having had the other experiences that you're talking about, where it's easy to, to let our, um, our knowledge that we may have uh, progressed quite far, um, that can also run away unchecked. So there were moments where I would... I'd be watching Rex work thinking I knew what he was doing. And then I realized he was 10 steps ahead of me. So I had that wonderful experience too. Um, he's, he's gifted in a lot of ways. And so, um, yes, I, I, we were billed as equals and there are probably areas of skill that I have as a trainer that are unique to me. Um, but Rex will always be uh, an extraordinary trainer in my eyes. Yeah. Co-training is such an interesting experience because um, sometimes it can really work with the right person uh, and if both people go into it in the right with the right attitude uh, the participants get a better experience than they would have got from either one of you 
And then other times you could have two really great trainers who are great on their own and together it just doesn't work. Yeah. Can I add one more best experience? Please, yeah. Uh, and I suspect this, this sort of relationship would be something you and I would enjoy more often if we lived closer to each other. I developed a really wonderful, wonderful co-training relationship with Doug O'Brien over the years. Oh, yeah. He and I met probably first in 2001. Uh, it was probably 2004 before we met up again and started thinking about doing some work together between the knowledge engineering material that you know well and, uh, and sleight of mouth, of course, as well, which uh, he's just gifted the training. I think he's probably one of the best at that. I and would agree, yeah. So together we put together something called belief craft, which is the combination of knowledge engineering about belief systems and sleight of mouth for changing beliefs. They, the two dovetailed together so well. So that was, that was the beginning of our partnership, was coming up with belief craft together. And we taught it in the UK, and we taught it in Orlando, and we made a product out of it. And um, he's really very much uh, kin to me. I mean, he, uh, he's kind of like a, a brother from another mother. He, he yeah. and I learned to co-train together so well where we could sort of, we, we'd see where each other was going and, um, and augment the work that each of us was doing on stage sometimes very uh, very subconsciously from the back of the room or through nudging students along that uh, level of depth of co-training relationship which um, which I developed over a great deal of time with with Doug um, has been truly formative for me and um, and he and I have just gone in slightly different directions in the sense that he he has um, he has always been primarily focused on hypnosis and he's just wonderful at it he's just extraordinary at it and, and so he's interested in hypnosis and hypnotic storytelling, and he's doing wonderful work there and continuing to evolve. And, and I moved in the direction of more business applications of NLP, and, and there's less overlap between our work nowadays than I think there was in the past. And that's probably more because, because of the shift that I've made towards more business work. So again, that's, those are, are two of the uh, probably top ongoing experiences in my, in my career today. So. I'm grateful for both of them and so many other things too, including you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've had a slightly similar journey with hypnosis because, you know, I used to be a hypnotherapist at one time right. Right. and I've moved more and more towards business applications. So there's stuff going on in hypnosis now, which um, I, you know, I'm, I'm out of the loop on those developments really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So if the, uh, if the you of now could say something to the you back then just starting out in NLP, uh, what would it have been useful for you to hear back then from, uh, from what you know now? Um, <laughs> this is another kind of way of asking what yeah. do you wish you'd known when you were starting out? And there's, you know. and there's not a lot um, uh -huh. that comes to mind. My answer is probably really short on this question. I, I think I just wish I'd known about it earlier. Oh yeah, I can uh, I can second that because um, what was I thirty five I think when I found out about NLP. I mean, there's a lot that I know now that I didn't know then. Um, that I I can't say I, I chose some amazing trainers, so I don't have the experience that a lot of my students have shared with me, which is that they they sometimes choose teachers that are not optimal for them initially and. Uh, and they showed up at my course, or they've shown up at someone else's course who was wonderful for them, and then I met them later, and they'll often say, I wish I'd known who was going to be the best trainer for me initially. I didn't have that experience. I went to Rex Sykes. I went to Richard Pandler. I went to the top people. I, um, I was very lucky in that regard. 
yeah, you uh, you you rolled a six uh, on your first go, didn't you? Um, so NLP is an evolving field, and um, people model things from other disciplines, like like you've done with the decision systems to create knowledge engineering. There are new developments happening. What are you really excited about in the NLP field at the moment? Okay. Hmm. There's always something to be excited about. Um, I love what you're doing with the Practical NLP Podcast and also with Appreciative Inquiry. Uh, I'm excited that you're doing more with business applications of NLP. Uh, Peter Freed is continuing to do some great stuff with business. Yep. I'm excited to learn more from what I would say are the very, very few uh, neuro-linguistic programmers out there, the trainers and and information providers who are keeping the bar really high on quality and level of immersion. And this is probably one of the most important factors to me. I mean, James Sakalos, who you did an interview with recently, and Richard Bolstad continue to write uh, in ways that are, are evidence of the quality of their thinking and the depth of their understanding of, of what they speak on. Uh, Jamie Smart is doing some wonderful work with his three principles-based clarity practitioners and more. He's doing some uh, some newer stuff now. He's found a way to achieve much wider recognition uh, from the wider field of coaching without sacrificing quality or talent. Uh, and Eric Robbie uh, online, Robbie, pardon me, continues to write in ways that just astound me. I mean, he just has a level of depth and understanding. I know that I'm always impressed when I read what he writes. As you know, and this is a little bit, I'm starting getting away into a more contentious area. As you know, unfortunately, many of the most famous Nelpers out there have sacrificed quality and don't have as much talent as certain others. They'll go to great lengths to look good on camera and oversimplify NLP for sound bites. Um, that's not impressive to me, and they've watered it down so much that their students are what I would call a dim shadow of what NLP is really capable of helping us achieve. So. I guess what I'm saying is, if you're asking me who I really admire in NLP, I'm, I'm only impressed and excited by those who keep standards high in whatever they're doing. And I don't mean standards in terms of the budget they spend on making a presentation look powerful or sound fabulous. I'm interested in results. In other words, what are these students uh, capable of when they leave? Um, how much retention do they keep longer range after the course is over? These are the bigger questions that matter to me. And and as far as I'm concerned, any course that has more than about 25 students, 30 students maximum, um, will not be able to achieve the level that we can achieve with smaller classes. So, um, again, keeping the standards high. I admire anybody who's keeping the standards high. Uh, yeah, and what strikes me about all the people who you've mentioned there is that um, they know about stuff outside of NLP as well. So I know that, uh, well... Peter Freeth, for example, um, rethinks a lot of things almost from first principles and uh, kind of almost reverse engineers some of the NLP techniques uh, and they, they come out different at the end. Uh, Richard Bolstad, uh, all of these are people who I, um, I hope to get on the podcast for future interviews. Richard um, really keeps up with psychological research and neuroscience. Um, James does some very innovative stuff from uh, 
not from of spiral it. dynamics, but he's aware, yeah. he's aware of it. He's not following it slavishly for sure. And Eric knows, um, uh, has in-depth knowledge of uh, linguistics, uh, for example, as far as I can tell from his writing anyway. So n- people are learning, these people are learning stuff and aware of stuff and thinking about stuff from outside of NLP as well. They're not just uh, staying within the boundaries of, of what they were taught by their, by their trainers. Agreed. And, and I think that's where the, uh, the future of the field really lies, is cross-fertilization uh, allied with, of course, modeling, uh, modeling excellence, which oh, is the heart of it. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I really wish there was a way to educate the public that it was more effective than it's been lately to help students to turn away from perhaps the most popular and the shorter NLP courses out there because they're not doing anybody a service. I mean, I really wish there was a way for us to more effectively educate uh, consumers of NLP courses before they take their most important courses like a practitioner or a master practitioner or a trainer's training course. Those are typically the, the, the core courses most people take, yeah. or at least some of those. And, and if there are a way to keep people from, from being attracted to the most popular and the shortest NLP courses, which are, in my opinion, amongst the worst criteria for choosing such courses, if there were a way for us to do that more effectively. Yeah, it's a, it's a conundrum and market forces seem to be, um, James uh, Sakalas was talking about this on the last interview uh, about uh, how courses seem to be getting shorter and shorter, uh, apart from his, which I think is still 28 days. And, and that's a real achievement that he's managed to keep those going. Isn't that amazing? 28 yeah. days. I, that would never fly in the United States. Uh, and that, I know that that's a limiting belief. And maybe it would potentially with enough people in one's customer base. But the problem is, is multifold. Number one, there's a lot of skepticism in the U.S. Uh, for NLP. There really is. Yeah. In fact, in higher-end coaching circles, um, it's become the rage for entrepreneurs who charge $10,000 at the workshop uh, to, to denigrate NLP in their advertising materials. I've seen it happen lately, recently, um, because they think of it as being uh, something that um, that people use for only influence and not so ethical influence. And I would say that that's what's coming out of those short NLP courses. Yep. Instead of more ethical, more grounded use of NLP. So, um, so, in, it, so in the U.S., we've got some potential challenges to, to overcome with that. Additionally, um, in, let's say, in Europe and the U.K. and Australia, true of all those places, you have more holiday time in general than, than people in the U.S. do. I mean... It's very common for people uh, in Europe, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, et cetera, to have between three to six weeks of vacation per year. That's considered normal. Whereas in the US, having two weeks is rare and only top executives move up to three or four. So so people have less free time available. So now compare that with a 14-day practitioner course over two weeks um, and people have to give up all of their annual vacation to attend such a course. It's not easy. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that, but uh, yeah, I've I've always thought uh, I've always wondered how um, Americans manage on so little holiday. Wow. Um, it's I, it's your superpower, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. A meme, I guess, <laughs> and it gets tougher and tougher over time to compete. Yeah. In these interviews, uh, I I like to have something for our 
listeners that they can take away and play with or have some little bit of NLP explained to them or some little intervention or even thought experiment that they can take away and try out. So uh, what have you got? Okay. That's a, um, you know, when you asked me to, to share something with your, your listeners, um, I was uh, faced with a bit of a challenge because I've got a lot of different techniques that are, uh, that are, are relatively unique to me. And I thought a technique, if I'm speaking to a wider range of, of people, meaning range of, let's say, NLP background and skill, uh, what can I come up with that would be valuable for everybody, regardless of their background? And because uh, I've got techniques that are basic and I've got techniques that are advanced. Uh, for example, some of my stuff on anchoring is uh, nothing short of amazing to even people who've taken practitioner courses. You've seen that, that material trained, so you know what I'm talking about. But what I'm thinking of is what if we can share um, not only importance, but uh, examples of two different styles of thinking that allow someone to have the kind of intellectual honesty and rigor that enables real art with an LP. And so what came to mind is sharing with your listeners the importance of knowing when they're using one style of thinking from another style of thinking. And the words are relatively complicated if you've never heard them before, but I'm going to, I'm going to unpack them and, and make them real and understandable. So here, here's what they are. This, if somebody's taking notes, this is what we begin with. It's the difference between inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. Now, let's look at the words, the verbs underneath uh, these adjectives. Um, deductive, the root word, of course, is deduce. So to deduce something is what I call forward thinking. In other words, we begin from some knowledge, some facts, and we use those facts to deduce from there what is true. An example of deductive logic would be, for example, uh, lots of folks have read um, uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. So Sherlock Holmes stories are examples of deductive reasoning taken to an extreme. In other words, being hyper aware of these details and then deciding what that must mean without predicting anything. That's both hard to do for a lot of folks and incredibly valuable to know that you're keeping your focus on just letting the facts take you wherever they take you without prediction. It's hard to do that, but it's worthwhile. And to know when you're sticking with just deductive logic. So deductive reasoning is letting the facts take us wherever they take us. And we're non-directional in our analysis. That's pretty important. The moment when we become directional, we've actually jumped to inductive. And I'm going to explain that one too, of course. So again, coming back to deductive, we are non-predictive, non-inductive. We, uh, we don't lean in any direction. We don't lead in any direction. We simply let information come to us. So in coaching work or in therapy using NLP, perhaps, uh, a lot of, let's say, less well-trained NLPers will intentionally go in a direction through a hunch, use of a hunch. And hunches can be valuable, but early on in gathering information from our clients or our subjects, if we stick with deductive logic, deductive reasoning, we let their information drive us towards an optimal solution. And knowing that we're sticking with deductive logic and deductive reasoning is so critical. I'll explain more about why in just a moment. Let's, let's flip the switch to inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning doesn't pay a lot of attention to all the data. 
it often will look at one clue and jump way ahead in thinking uh, to a predictive expectation. Uh, they cross their arms in front of them. That must mean they're closed to new ideas, which is a joke, of course. That's yep. in body language analysis. Uh, that's not what it means most of the time, but it can mean that potentially. So the, the issue with inductive reasoning is sometimes it leads us really far astray. So inductive reasoning, meaning predictive, takes us to some guess we have, and then we start working backwards from there. Now, working backwards from there is valuable. We call this backward chaining, and we can then ask the question, what would need to be true for my guess to actually be true? So inductive reasoning is to induce a result. Inductive reasoning is fabulous for choosing goals and designing pathways to get to a goal because that is predictive. That is saying, I'd like to get to this amazing result out there that isn't yet real, isn't yet true, and I don't yet know how to get there, but I want that for me and my family and my friends and, and for the people I serve. And, and so you create this wonderful goal. And if you move towards a goal deductively, you'll probably never get there. If you choose a wonderful goal and you work backwards from it and then find a pathway back to now, you can generate a path that gets you to your amazing goal. And so path planning towards goals, goal setting and then designing pathways to it, works a charm when you use backward chaining, when you intentionally begin with inductive reasoning. And having the rigor to focus our minds in an inductive fashion is so incredibly valuable, not only for us as individuals, Individuals for our own personal and professional development, but also for coaches. And I'm talking, I'm, I'm getting a little long-winded here. I promise I'll tighten it up. So being able to focus our attention inductively to induce a result, although working backwards is critical, and being able to move forwards from facts without direction deductively is also critical. Yeah, listeners, I can, uh, I can tell you that that backward chaining for setting goals really does work. I learned this from Jonathan on uh, a knowledge engineering course originally, and uh, it's been part of my kind of goal setting repertoire and what I teach my students ever since. Wonderful. How cool is that? Yep. Thank you. Great, great feedback. Uh, so... So uh, again, the first lesson is to know what these two different thinking styles are. And then the next lesson is to, is to commit ourselves to a greater level of personal awareness in our thinking patterns so that we can begin to, to detect when we jump unexpectedly or without intention back and forth between these two different thinking styles. And by the way, being able to jump back and forth is something all of us have inside of us already. The problem is that most of us Without any training or, or personal rigor, most of us are too casual about it, and we don't know when it happens. By the way, the best diagnosticians do both. They have to. Yeah. Because if you went to a doctor who was purely deductive, um, they couldn't move forward until they'd done 3,000 tests on you. <laughs> uh, yep. Right? If you went to an inductive doctor and said, my finger hurts, they'd say cancer. Yeah. Uh, there are some therapists like that, I think. I think you're absolutely right, which is why I, I think perhaps one of the best techniques I can share, if you ask me the question, to a varied audience is get clear and rigorous about when you're using each and for what effect. Great diagnosticians, whether they are medical or mechanics, I mean, great mechanics who can trace 
of the odd source of a, of a ping sound in an engine, they, just like a medical doctor, they have to be able to jump back and forth intentionally between inductive and deductive, minimizing the extra test expense to their customers. Same thing with medical. So uh, again, we all have the capacity for these styles of thinking. Uh, the problem is when we use these styles of thinking too casually, and you gave the example that of course there are probably some therapists. Yes, indeed. There are also some therapists who are probably a little bit better examples than that, but still not particularly extraordinary, who uh, let's say they'll, they'll get a hunch after they've gathered data. So they went deductive a bit and they gathered more facts and then a little bit prematurely they had a hunch and instantly went inductive probably a little too soon and then started to ask leading questions. And here's where it gets problematic. If you ask a leading question, that can, especially in therapeutic situations, you can create a moving target. And this is one of the reasons why knowledge engineering is so extraordinary for unpacking stuck states, because we stay clean in our language. And this is another word that has meaning in NLP circles is clean language. Well, clean language is another way of saying, um, staying deductive. In other words, gathering information without prediction or leading. So I know that clean language is an actual trademark term. I'm referring to clean language a little bit differently. I'm, I'm saying asking questions that do not involve leading longer than one might so we can gather a wider set of, of, of possibilities and, and a better map of what's really going on for someone else. The moment someone said, uh, let's say a, a client says to us, oh, I'd never want to do that. And if, if someone says, okay, so you'd never want to do that, that's staying clean. That's just reflecting what's been said. Yeah. Um, what, would, uh, what would you do is still a clean question because you're asking what's inside their maps. But if someone comes back, as NELPers are wont to do, if they're poorly trained, they'll say, never, you'd never do that. And now that's asking for a counterexample that may not be there. Yeah. And so it's so easy for people to shift from deductive to inductive without realizing it and knowing that they've just potentially created a moving target in, in what they're trying to build a map of and help a client fix. So anyway, I, I think what's critical there, and I think we've covered it, is, is this distinction between inductive and deductive and why it is uh, dangerous, sloppy, um, uh, poor quality communication and and coaching work to not be aware of when one shifts between deductive and inductive. So I think if your listeners can gain an appreciation of that and begin to improve the way in which they stay aware of their thinking patterns and tighten up which one they're using at what time and for what purpose, I think we'll have achieved something extraordinary. Okay. So if you, if we were to look into the future and what we might wish the field of NLP to become or what could come from it? What, what do you wish for the field of NLP in the future? Ooh. Well, ideally, I'd, I'd love the whipped cream providers of NLP to fall by the wayside in the marketplace <laughs> uh, so that NLP can get back to producing real Jedi masters, uh, so to speak. Uh -huh. Students need to get past their adulation of, what, of what's fancy in, on stage. Um, making, in other words, if the trainer is the one who's getting all the attention as opposed to the students, it's really about the students and it's not about the trainer. Yeah. Look at the only thing that matters. Um, the results that they're able to achieve, the students are able to achieve post-training. Compare that to students coming out of other trainers' courses. This is the only thing that matters is depth of results and skills transferred and length and depth of retention over time. 
um, how good the trainer looks, how, um, how well-dressed they are, how, uh, how, how much higher their stage is compared to where the students are standing or sitting. <laughs> yeah, how tall their chair is. Right, and these are, this is evidence of, of wrong signals. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, I'd love for the lesser-known greats at NLP to have more exposure to younger students or for younger students. Folks like Eric Roby in the UK, Rex Sykes in the USA, in Australia, let's let's name Roger Diener and Marvin Oka. I mean, there are some well-known trainers there too. Um, uh, Chris and Jules Collingwood have done something extraordinary by getting, and they're in Sydney. Uh, they're associated with John Grinder. Yeah, uh, they've they've gotten national accreditation for their courses. Uh, that isn't the direction I would go in, but I applaud their efforts and what they're aiming to achieve. Um, so. Um, so many more, not including those, again, excluding those who do short practitioner certification courses. I, just to reiterate, I think that one criteria is perhaps one of the most important for determining who is a gifted contributor to the field and who's a dark stain on our history, a pollutant, if you will. <laughs> uh, someone who sold out to, pocket, to benefit their pocket, let's say, uh, at students' expense while dragging the field down. Now, listen, I've heard the counter argument that, gosh, they're training useful skills during the few days that they're training. Why is that bad? Well, it's not that training useful skills is bad, that's valuable, but calling someone a practitioner after five days or less, when someone's doing the same thing over 10 plus days, or like James Sakalas for 28 days, it's ridiculous to say that a five-day practitioner is a practitioner. They're not. It sells a false sense of equivalent competence and fills the field with incompetent practitioners. I'm really, um, I can't say enough about this. The, um, the length of a practitioner training isn't the only criteria that's important by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very interesting and important criteria to consider. So, Yeah, and, and uh, the other thing that's probably worth mentioning as well nowadays is uh, that training time needs to be face-to-face -face as well because uh, I've seen uh, quote-unquote online practitioner certification courses beginning to pop up, and it's my belief that you can't learn this skill which is about people uh interacting with a computer screen versus interacting with actual live people absolutely not um, online practitioner training is a heinous joke to those of us who know better it really is um, it's fine to gather information and information gathering through books cds tapes even online videos um, valuable as educational components in a much larger training process. This is a full body sport. To really get NLP it has to be sensory rich in person with a guide, a mentor, who can tune what you do. Um, when you are using yourself as the sole criteria for whether you've performed a technique or, an, uh, or um, a pattern appropriately, you are deeply impoverished and don't have the criteria to know how or why. This is a full body sport. Get yourself to a live training with with wonderful mentors. It's that important. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, so what are you doing with NLP right now? And um, I'll, I'll ask you afterwards where, where our listeners can find you as well. So, so what have you got coming up? What are you doing with NLP now? Well, I've got two big projects uh, right in front of me, uh, not at the second, but in general right now. One of them is I'm finishing up an eight CD set on something called Own the Interview. I'm doing an eight CD set, or MP3s of course as well, on how to use NLP to completely ace any professional interview. And that's gonna be out quite soon. 
the other thing I'm doing right now is I'm reworking knowledge engineering into KE 2.0, which is going to be an actual certification course on modeling and coaching. It's time. It's the materials evolved. Uh, teaching KE over three days was a nice convenience, but really didn't get us to the kind of depth that people really needed to get truly gifted with, with knowledge engineering. So it's time. And so that's, that's one of my next big projects. And my first certification course on KE 2.0 will be somewhere in the realm of six months away from now. So sometime during spring 2017, uh, I'm sure I'll teach it somewhere in the U.S., somewhere in Australia, and somewhere in Europe. Uh, right, yes, because um, I, I don't know if I said this before, one of the differences between you and uh, many NLP trainers is that you, you, you train all over the world. Uh, well, indeed I do. Um, uh, though I haven't been doing a lot of international travel since 2009 when the downturn happened. Um, things have obviously picked up since then and it's time for me to get, uh, get moving again. Um, I've probably trained in at least 10 countries. Uh, I've trained in the UK at least 20 different times. That's 20 different visits with typically more than one course per visit. I've trained yeah. in Europe at least 10, 15 times, trained in Australia nine times, I think uh, possibly with more than one course per visit. Um, so yeah, Canada a bunch of times. I, uh, I found no real restriction in my head, no limiting beliefs that separated me from running a course in Tampa versus running a course in London or, uh, or Oxford or Edinburgh or, um, uh, or Glasgow or Melbourne or Sydney. I just, I just felt, well, why not? If I can run a course here, I can run a course there. So I just uh, hopped the flight and, and set things up and, and the rest is history. I've, I've, I have to say it is an unbelievable privilege to, to be able to say that and to have learned uh, from gifted minds like yours. I've had the opportunity to connect with people in multiple different cultures and gain a global sense of awareness that I never really had to that degree prior to becoming a trainer of NLP. Um, I, I'm really, I'm truly grateful for it. it um, it's offered a, uh, a different perspective on the world that I, I um, uh, that I, I just have a lot of gratitude for. So, yeah, um, yeah, because people do think differently out there in different countries, different cultures. I've, I've found this. Uh, I've been working in uh, various bits of the Muslim world in uh, the Middle East and Southeast Asia over the last few years, and uh, it do, it does enrich you. It does broaden your horizons. Indeed. Indeed it does. And it also teaches you what not to do. Like never put two fingers up in the air uh, while you're saying the word two in front of a British audience. <laughs> Definitely not. Well, depends which way around the fingers are. Yeah. So that's just what's exactly right. And I, and I did it the better way, but it, I still caused a couple of gasps. So that's <laughs> early on. And, and, and that's just one example of many, let's say, intercultural differences that one learns to appreciate sometimes the hard way. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so where can, where can our listeners find you? Where's your website? Okay. Uh, website is uh, my last name, which is altfeld.com. Uh, I'm sure you'll have a link there on your site. Somewhere. I certainly will. Yeah. Um, and um, probably, I mean, I'm going to mention a couple of options and opportunities uh, that people might want to take advantage of, but probably the best way for someone to get to know me and for me to potentially get to know each of them a little bit, is if they go to my site and look for the promo that's available on any page and it says two free gifts sent by mail. I'm still one of the very few folks out there that actually sends out a promo packet by mail. I don't send it to every country, um, but I will send it internationally to um, 
to most Western countries. And, um, and it's not cheap for me to do so. I do it because a significant percentage of the people that receive that will become a customer. So I consider it an investment and an opportunity for me to share with each person who does this. Um, some, some material and, and you know, some good materials for getting started. So there's a couple of gifts in, in, uh, in that package that goes out. Uh, I don't do it in exchange for just an email address. I expect people to share with me some, some of their personal information. So people who prefer to stay anonymous, they don't get the package. Sorry. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Just, it's, it's quite an investment for me to do that and follow through on that. So, um, so I'd like to get to know each person who's doing that. And, and if they prefer to stay anonymous, they can get on my email list as well uh, or as an alternative for just an email address. And they'll get, there's another gift they could get if they do that. Um, Lately, I've been doing a lot of coaching and consulting, a uh, surprising amount, in private and corporate clients. Uh, I'm still doing a little bit of public training, and um, if they want to learn more about what I'm doing and join me in a course, I'd love it. I'd love to get to know them. Mostly focusing on business applications of NLP these days, like in public speaking, sales, uh, and even the home study materials on interviewing coming up soon. All my certification courses nowadays are 10-day business NLP courses. I teach a business NLP practitioner course, for example. Many of the same skills that are taught in a standard practice course are, are taught in my business NLP practice, but I'm primarily focused on how these skills can best be used in business settings and professional settings. So uh, here's an example. Kinesthetic anchoring, for one, is a skill that's inevitably more limited in business settings. Yep. Um, but uh, I, I typically use examples and stories and, and when I'm constructing exercises, I'm, I'm intentionally using business settings as our context for application. So I'd love to hear from everybody. And, and let's, why don't we extend an offer to everybody too? Just uh, thanks for listening. Please um, do, yeah. Listeners, a special time-limited offer through my website. And I'm going to say that it'll work for two weeks after you publish this podcast. And they can get 20% off my 4CD or MP3 set called Creating the Automatic Yes. This is a 4CD set on, on something called emotional state training. So how to influence, not through pushy language patterns, but through emotional state transitions. How to move your listeners from less receptive to more receptive states. And, uh, and they can get 20% off. And thanks for listening to this podcast for two full weeks after you publish the podcast. How's that? Let's call the coupon... Practical NLP. Okay, well, I think that just about wraps it up. We've, uh, we're going to put uh, a link to the uh, explanation of inductive and deductive reasoning. Yep. Uh, you've mentioned your courses, and I will uh, also put a, a link on, on the blog to where people can find those. I'm sure they can just get notified of that as soon as they're available just from uh, signing up to your newsletter at uh, altfeld.com very good so just remains for me to say thank you very much jonathan for being my interviewee today it's been a real privilege and uh, i guess at some point we'll probably have you back uh, in the future but we want to give uh, many other nlp trainers a go as well so it might not be for a couple of years I would, uh, I'd be happy to join you again. Thank you so much for hosting this, for doing this work, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to listening to your future interviews as well. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jonathan. Okay. Bye. See you Bye. soon. So there's our interview. You can find the show notes for this episode at nlppod.com. 
where you'll see a link to Jonathan's article setting out the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning in more detail. Also in the show notes, there's a link for you to get 20% off his excellent Creating the Automatic Yes audio program with a choice of CD set or MP3 format. Just follow the link to Jonathan's product page and use the coupon code PRACTICALNLP on your order. This is a limited time offer and that coupon code is valid up to 11pm Eastern USA time on 10th of November 2016. That's it for this week's podcast. See you next time.